Recorded on Monday, December 23rd, 2013, in St. Louis, Missouri. This Agile Life, Episode 30. People work here. Welcome to This Agile Life, a podcast about what it's like to be agile in the real world. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro, and joining me today are my two co-hosts, Lee McCauley. Hey, John. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well, Lee. We're recording this on the Monday before Christmas in the U.S., so uh, very appropriate that you give me the old happy holidays there. Our other co-host tonight is our old friend and pal, Jason Tice. Good evening, John and Lee. And as a wise person once said, it all depends on the context. And so if someone happens to subscribe to This Agile Life a year from now, realize that this is the holiday season in the year 2013. Well said. So my gift, my gift to everyone this holiday is the gift of context and how important it can be to ensure that what you're doing is relevant. I like context too. That's why I always say the day and uh, the, the date of when we record. So, in post production. So. In post, but it, it it comes out, it comes out. You know, it comes out okay, loud and clear on the old uh, podcast. There. All right, guys, uh, let's let's jump into the discussion. And today we are going to be talking about predictions, predictions for 2014, since it is almost the end of the calendar year here in 2013. We've got some predictions for 2014, and especially related to the human side of Agile. Our old buddy Jason Tice, the Agile Factor, he came, he dug up these uh, 10 predictions from a guy named Gil Broza. Is that right, Jason? Is that how you say it? I believe it's Braza. So um, okay. we'll, have to, we'll have to tweet Gil after we, after we post this, and he can, um, he can correct us on his name. But what he did, um, and I thought this was interesting, but it's also um, it's a good, it's a good discussion. He took um, some of the things that we, you know, we talk about really tr- some of the cultural aspects of, of practicing and employing Agile. And he talked about how one of his things is he's concerned they may not change in the next year. And, you know, one thing that he wants to do is help change that. And so what we kind of thought we'd do, here's a top 10 list. Um, we thought we'd go through it and kind of, you know, provide our personal views on, you know, what these these. I'll go ahead and call them problems, and maybe what we think our ideas are about how we could change them in our own activities. All right, let's go through these one by one, and we'll hopefully get through all 10 of them, and then we'll have some discussion around the prediction and how, how we feel about it, our personal feelings and professional feelings on the, on the prediction itself. The first one says, people will still refer to other people as resources. Even their own teammates. So I, I thought this one was interesting in that it's a uh, prediction for Agile. And I, I think this is more of a prediction for business than necessarily the, the human side of Agile. Um, but, uh, but I think, I, I don't know, I think this, this keeps going, going through. I keep hearing it occasionally, even in our office, um, where we have a, a strong... Um, uh, we we recognize this a lot. Whenever somebody says it, you'll hear a groan someplace in the room. Um, so I, I don't know. I, why why does why does this still happen, guys? Well, I, I think I think there are a lot of folks with the business mindset that are quick to 
as long as there's a human resource department in a company, it kind of creates a perception that, you know, people are resources. But my simple guidance to everyone out there is just stop. Um, if anything, you'll find you can have better discussions if you start calling people people, because there are other things that you work with on a day to day basis that are true resources. And so you should use the word resource for those things, be it, you know, computers or maybe time or funding or a budget. Those are resources. Let people be people. Simple. But, and, but this is an, uh, specifically around Agile. I think the complaint that I hear the most when I have uh, developers or QA or whoever the, the grunt worker is that's being called a resource or is mentioning this, their, their problem is that um, it's, it's very much a, a knowledge industry. And each person is, is very much a, uh, um, an individual and very much a, uh, when you, when you tailor a team and in a lot of cases, you tailor the team to the, to the particular talents of the people that are going to be on that team. You can't just throw a bunch of resources at it, a bunch of people at it and just think that uh, a job's going to get done well and at the same price and at the same speed that, uh, that any, you can throw any people at it and, and that's what uh, the, the predictions are still going to be the same as far as your estimates for, how, for your time, right? Um, this is the, the thing that I hear a lot of is um, when salespeople or when business people are wanting our estimates and wanting, um, uh, wanting to know how fast something is going to get done, and then they change the team. Now, wait a second. Those estimates are now wrong because the team's changed. Yeah. Well, and I think that's this to, to lead to what you're saying, you know, because, you know, we haven't talked about complexity recently on the podcast, but, you know, what we are doing is knowledge work. It is complicated. Teams are self-managing. And the other one that I don't think is on the top 10 list here, but there's a false perception that you can keep a team effectively have it be the same team, but change the people. And, you know, I'm sorry. And I know it's one thing that is in the human side of Agile. It's mentioned is that even if you change one person on the team, um, hate to say it, you change the team. So that's okay, but it's important for that team to then evolve and establish its an updated identity, reflecting that one or two people that may have cycled in or cycled out. I think you both bring up some some good points there. And anytime, so it, it definitely lead, it doesn't is not specific only to agile. So that's a good point. And then the point that Jason made is that there's a if there's a whole damn piece of the organization called human resources that that's already lending itself to the fact that people are going to use that word. And I think that I think Jason, I think there's a psychology behind the term human resources some, right? Because it came out of the industrial era. I mean, that's if you've read a uh, drive by Daniel Pink, where he talks about, you know, motivation 1.0 motivation 2.0. And now the new thing is motivation 3.0, but in the motivation 2.0 stage, there was this idea of trying to apply, you know, some of the traditional things from manufacturing, those same mindsets that really allowed to that allowed to achieve better economic benefits from economies of scale. Let's use that to manage people. Uh, that's a really bad idea. So I, I have a prediction. I, I think that in 2014 or 2015, there's going to be a motivation 4.0. <laughs> what do you really? Think? Well, we, we still have to finish Architecture 3.0 because that one's not done yet, although there's, there's parts of it, you know, because there's Management 3.0, uh, there's Motivation. So, yeah. So, Lee's already moving on to the next version. Yeah, so. he, he, Lee's into 2015 predictions. 
But I, I think that there's I think there's another piece to this that's that's the psychology of it. And it's it's a lot easier to fire a human resource than it is to fire a person. And I think it's a lot easier. My biggest pet peeve with this is not even human resource or resources. It's when people use the term FTE, as, which, which is short for full-time equivalent. And they're like, yeah, that team, they've got seven, 7.5 FTEs, and we're going to have to cut back 1.5 FTEs. And then you have to normalize your velocity, right, John, to do, to do your PSI planning meetings. No, it has nothing to do with velocity. It has to do with callously using these terms to make decisions that are going to affect people's pocketbooks okay. and their lives. So here's my question. So if if we obviously the list here use the word resources, which you know my simple request for everyone, go back to your work area, get a big piece of butcher paper, get the whiteboard, you know, write the word resources on it, and put a big X on it, you know, and like leave it up there, remind everyone, make a big deal out of it. That will hopefully maybe encourage people. But John, other than FTE, what are some other no no terms? So resources is bad, FTE is bad. What else should go on the banned word list for 2014? Apparently, according to the government, we're not allowed to say slave anymore. Okay, well, okay, Abraham Lincoln, uh, that was a while back, okay. No, because, because in, in the U.S., it's, it, it, it's a, the slave connotation is to the black people. And that's, I mean, that's really not true, right? I mean, all throughout history, there have been tons of slaves that have been all kinds of colors okay for some reason there's a sensitivity now to the to the term slave and we can't you can't say slave jason okay anything else i haven't heard that recently at least in the context of people which i'm thankful for i'll share so i've heard it in the terms of uh uh, build boxes master and slave but uh luckily down the people context yeah you can't say slave that's what i'm talking about no more you can't say that anymore all right so you have to say like um Master, primary and secondary. Parent and child. So make a big sign that says no resources. I think there's a problem with butcher paper. I think that's, that, that might be politically incorrect somehow. Yeah, it has to be like person that cuts up meat paper. Yes. I, I got a better one. In, human, in a few resource, days, you, human resource that cuts up meat. <laughs> in, a few, in a few days, when your kids rip open all those presents or whoever opens all those presents, save the wrapping paper and use it to recycle right on the back. Okay, very good. Let's move on to number two before we run out of time on number one. I told you we're going to do the we're going to do three. That's going to be it. <laughs> Hopefully not. Oh, okay. All right, number two is going to be twenty minutes. Here we go. Hit it, John. Why don't you Why don't you read this one, Jason? Okay, we'll number take two. Turns. Nominally, agile organizations will continue to administer performance appraisals that emphasize the individual and downplay the team. Yeah, this is a good one. I think uh, I'm surprised that this one is number two. I'm not sure if these are in like some sort of order, but I, I definitely uh, have, have a personal problem with this. I think that incentivizing individuals is in direct conflict with the whole team approach. What do you guys think? I agree totally, John. Yeah, this, this is an interesting one because uh, uh, we just went through our yearly performance reviews and, uh, and it was, a, it was an interesting exercise. And there were many discussions about exactly what is the purpose of the performance appraisals in this case, or the uh, performance reviews. Um, if they're really trying to, to get people to be 
better at their jobs and to get critical feedback, which I do believe is the real point, then it probably should happen way more than just once a year. Um, and so, so this connection of this performance appraisal to a, uh, to your benefits or to your, to your salary that's going to come up in, you know, half a month or a month or so when we, when we get those, those things, uh, I'm, I'm not sure there is really a connection there, but there is the implied connection. Well, there's an implied connection. So I, I think the problem with this number two is that the whole thing needs to be reworded to say, you know, what is the objective? If the objective is truly to help people improve, then if you can give feedback with a shorter feedback loop, you'll be able to facilitate better improvement. I mean, that's why teams have retrospectives, ideally after every sprint or every development cycle. You should apply the same to people. Um, if you want to talk about whole team approach, this idea of going off and sitting, you know, in a room one-on-one with someone and getting feedback, you know, that kind of, how, how does that promote an awareness of what's going on? You know, some would say you would be better to have a team discussion um, or, you know, kind of like a, an open, what they typically call a 360 evaluation, which is where everyone's involved and you get feedback from your peers. But that's still, that's still a focus on the individual. It is, but at the same time, you know, what do you do, John, if you're if you've got someone on a team who maybe because of something they either understand or they don't understand, they're doing something that could be improved that's ultimately holding the team back. I think what you do is again, this goes back to the it's the problem that our old friends in the human resource department are still stuck in the nineteen seventies world of managing their human resources. <laughs> on these teams and <clears throat> they're using the old uh, management 1.0 playbook to, to manage things when they really, what they really need to be doing is saying this team, this team succeeds and this team fails as a single unit. And everyone on that team gets, you know, this is all, this is all in place to somehow figure out how much people are going to get in their increase and what they deserved get paid and and these sorts of things. So I think that what they should do is make that team based and either the team all gets the same increase, the same merit bonus, the same whatever, or they don't based on what their performance was. Not as individuals, as one team. Or the other one that I've seen done in a, in a very few number of organizations is where if there's a bonus and they can they can do it, they give it to the team, let the team decide how they want to handle it out. They think someone truly did contribute yeah. more. Maybe they give them more. Right. If they want to split it equally, they split it equally. And for the people that are out there shouting at us right now saying, well, what about Joe's on the team, but doesn't do anything? Well, that's your fault. If you're letting Joe get away with that. So don't let Joe get away with that. You need to bring him along or, uh, you know, figure it out and, f- and fix that through retrospectives, through crucial conversations with that person and through involving people in your in your team and in your organization to make that better so john since um and obviously lee and i were we're with it we're with a, an it company and you're an independent if um if you were truly going to give advice and you know consulting on this topic to someone who's doing a transformation about and they say well what do we do with our performance appraisals what would you tell them to do i'd say make it so that you do performance appraisals for the team not for the individual and uh, that performance appraisal for the team applies to every individual that's on that team. 
And of course, you have to figure out and, and work things out so that if, if, uh, if Bob was only on the team for six months and he was on another team for six months, you got to work all that stuff out. But that's what we have the old human resources department for to figure all that stuff out. It's, it's the people department. Come on. Okay. I agree. That's what I would call it if, if it was my business. I'd call it. You don't like, you don't like people talent department. management? Or just see that? That's getting popular. Oh, I like that a lot. Hmm. Talent management. I'm looking for the catalyst. So, you know, because every organization out there has performance appraisals. We hear all the, you know, you hear the, you hear the best case stories about, you know, organizations that shift away. What's the first incremental step you can take to make that change? What, what's your idea? Sounds like you have one. Uh, I know, and I'm asking. I mean. <laughs> like I said, stop incentivizing individuals and start incentivizing the team or evaluating the team. I'm not sure there's a there's a step to that. I think that's a, just a clear break. Yeah, you know what? It's less work for for the people department, and it's less yeah. work for the people managers. I know the idea that I've kicked around a few idea a few the a few folks that has some merit. And actually, I, I know some. We did this at a a, a not for profit job that I have on the side teaching yoga. Is we did um we did self reflections that we wrote up and we put them on a wall publicly. And then people just looked at them and it was a way to get feedback. And then you had to like write your name on it. So you couldn't lie, you know, because if I write lies up there about myself, everyone will know. But it was a way to get a lot of good feedback about, you know, here's what I here's how I think I did. And make that transparent to others. I mean, there's just a way to at least cut down on the paperwork. OK, I, I say we move on to number three. At this I think point. we murdered that one, too. Lee, let's give you the, the right of reading. Okay, so number three is technology managers and stakeholders will still assume that their teams ought to develop quality products faster than is realistically possible. (laughs) I like this one a lot. (laughs) So how are we going to change that, John? Oh, man. Um, I'm I'm thinking electroshock treatment. I'm with Lee on that one. I I think if we had the magic bullet for this one, that it would be the the multi-billion dollar sales in a bottle device. I think this is the toughest nut of all of these things to crack. I think you can, I think you can crack this. So this kind of goes back to our, our product owner discussion a few episodes back, both parties involved, you know, the technology managers, the stakeholders, and as well as the teams building the products, everybody needs to invest in building relationships really to help people bet to, to better help manage expectations. Okay. I think the problem here, though, is a little bit of the the disconnected nature of managers and some of the stakeholders, and your comment about the product owner is valid, and I assume that you're including the product owner in in with the group of people that have the unrealistic expectations, right? Yeah, well, from really from the lean mindset, there's the whole idea of not troubling your customers which is one of the key elements of showing respect for people, which is one of the core tenets of Lean. And so I, I think this is an example where all parties involved, the developers, the business, everyone needs to show respect for each other and really manage expectations. So where I've seen this go wrong is a lot of times you'll have a project where they might have, you know, the business may really want to have specific, you know, line item deliverables or feature sets and they don't understand that over time things change, things evolve, you know, both in the technical context and also in the business context. And I think what needs to happen is there needs to be more communication and more feedback there 
to really manage expectations. I think this really goes deeper than, than that to some degree. I, I think this also goes to um, how we estimate projects because we on the, on the technical side uh, do a pretty lousy job of estimating projects because when, we, when we're asked to estimate them and when the business people really need them to decide uh, whether they should pursue a particular project or not is way at the beginning and we don't have enough information to really get an accurate estimation. Um, if, if it were instead uh, required, if we could find some better way to, to do those estimates, um, perhaps doing something like what, uh, what Jason, you've proposed before, and I think, John, you, you've uh, mentioned this too, with the probabilistic estimations and, and getting some, some standardized rate for a company. So, for example, if the company we worked for, if all of the projects um, standardized on one particular thing, uh, one particular way of measuring cycle time, for example, then we could come up with a probabilistic estimate. Okay, well, it looks like we could break this this particular project down into a uh, uh, into this many features, and typically um, features. You know, we can just do a rough estimate of how many stories are going to be involved in a given feature, and based on that rough estimate, we're still probably, if we use the probabilistic estimations, we could give a pretty good idea of how long that stuff is going to take. And, uh, and then it, it's just a matter of the business people trusting those, those numbers. Yeah. The other th- well, the other one lead that's implied in there is you made a bunch of non-stated assumptions about certain levels of standardization. So there's probably yep. some standardization with, uh, you know, the tech that, that's being used, the process being used, um, you know, all, all the stuff involved and, and to make sure we, when we're starting to, we don't contradict ourselves from earlier in our discussion the biggest thing that causes variation in cycle time are the people involved. So that's hard to do. Um, could work. I think if you had enough data over the course of a year or two for a given organization and you could compartmentalize those or categorize those based on project types, be it iOS or um, uh, web services or that sort of thing. If you can, if yeah. you can categorize the type of project it is, then I think you could get a pretty good, a pretty good estimation system there that wouldn't require people breaking it down into infinite detail at the very beginning. Yeah. Here's what I think is going on. I think what you're saying, Lee, is two steps of improvement away from what is actually happening and what what Gil is talking about in this third item here. What he's saying is that people, the the managers and stakeholders aren't even bothering to go to the point at which they have some sort of an assessment or an an estimation from the team. They're just jumping to the conclusion that that sounds like about six months worth of work and I'm not even going to ask anybody. I'm just going to assume that it is going to take six months. It's like when you're on a project, the next thing you know, your stories get estimated and the team never looked at them. Exactly. So merely allowing the team to do some of that work and estimation and provide provide the uh, the feedback and their their guess about how long it's going to take would be a step in the right direction. Uh, what is happening What is happening here is that and and here's what I think about this a little bit. 
I think the further away from the technology on a day-to-day basis that you are, the more you start to do this because you have this, um, you have this look back on your career and history and you're like, oh, things were easy when I was doing them. And so everything took two hours to do. And so when you start to think through these things in your mind as a manager or a stakeholder, you're like, yeah, that giant system is probably about six months worth of work. And, uh, and you, you just jump to these conclusions. So I don't know. It's the, I think it's part of the, uh, part of the optimistic side of the human psyche. Well, it's also, it's also part of the fact that, uh, humans generally, um, remember things the way they want to remember them, not the way they actually are. Um, we, we've, I think we've mentioned this before that the, the worst piece of evidence that you can get on in the court of law uh, is almost the worst is a witness um, because witnesses suck as far as remembering what actually happened. Oh, yeah. Jason wants to say something. Yeah, I found my video pre- preview. And so I have two I have two um, two different kind of two different thoughts. First and foremost, there's the need to change the paradigm by which the technology managers and stakeholders think about how they manage scope and expectation of a project. So not to go skilled agile on you, but one thing the skilled agile framework does well is it talks about an idea of what I'm going to call an effective roadmap. And that is that, you know, you've got really good fidelity for what you're doing, like in your next build cycle that they call a PSI. Uh, and so you've got, a re- it's well-defined, it's estimated, it's scoped out. Then the next one, which is typically, you know, the next build cycle, each of these are about, they say three to four sprints. Um, so call it six to eight weeks if you're doing two week sprints. You've got enough understanding of the marquee features, which is kind of like the high level, what's coming down the road. And then beyond that, you've just got, you know, real high level statements. So the challenge here is, you know, saying that as things come closer, they come into greater fidelity. And from that, you can better manage expectations. Um, the second piece to bring out is, um, I completely lost my train of thought in the second piece. I shouldn't try to make two points at once. So we'll just go on. Yeah, let's move on to the next one. Number four is that companies will continue to not train their developers in agile engineering because technical execution skill will remain off the radar. I guess they're just saying that they're not, the companies are not going to spend any money on, on test-driven development or other things related to agile engineering practices, pair programming, continuous delivery, short iterations, right? I'm not sure how to respond on this one. Um, it, it seems obviously true, but I have no clue how you would go about trying to change the minds of um, you know C-level, C-level executives to, uh, to try to get them to focus on this kind of training and to, and to feel the, the importance of it. They could hire the Tice McCulley Sextro Consulting Firm and... <laughs> We could go in there and help them out. Well, okay, but to call like it is, guys, I mean, some of this is a little bit of, there's more to effective agile software development than the process. I mean, yes, the process plays a component, and in some instances, the process is neglected. So you could have the greatest engineering disciplines in the world, and if if you think the process will fall in line, that's actually a fallacy. But I think what's more out there now, and this is, you know, this is a remnant of, of people who have become interested in the space, and that's good for business, is to realize that 
once you learn the process and maybe you, you know, you, you go to scrum class and you, you know, you get a scrum cert that there are technical practices that need to be in place to ensure that that methodology can be successful. Right. And that, that's true, Jason. And I think the point here is that that's the, where the people are stopping in management is, is at the point where they have the process. They're saying, we've identified a process. We've gotten some training on a process. That's enough. Don't worry about giving the developers and engineers additional training to help them become more effective in the engineering practices. And that's the myth. Yeah. Yeah. And actually the thing that's out there and I, I was going to plug this, but I, I don't know how to plug it yet. Like as a pick at the end of the show. So there's a new thing out there. It's called the new deal, the dash new dash deal.org. Um, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a pushback against a lot of the folks who, you know, it's really about getting things to be more focused on true development techniques and not so much about process. Um, you, there's an opportunity to go online to sign it. Um, and I think over time we'll see what this grows into being. So it's got a lot of signatories right now. So, um, and it's not real well defined what you're signing up for, but we'll watch the space. One thing that we can offer maybe to some of the engineers and developers out there is that if your your team has a training budget or if you get uh, as an individual some amount of training budget, maybe you can talk to your manager, uh, to your people leader in your area and ask if you can maybe uh, pool that all together to have some sort of a larger training to help with some particular engineering practice that you have observed that your team could benefit from training on or around. You know, one thing we should try to do in the next year, John, is we should try to, because there's some really good, um, like, TDD, you know, videos and stuff. You know, they're kind of like you follow along. Um, but we should probably, you know, maybe do a greatest hits thing where all of us come in with uh, a couple different, I'll call it self-help resources that we could make, you know, promote awareness of for the betterment of everyone out there and, and really make that focused on engineering practices, not so much on the process. Good point. Okay, let's move on to number five, Jason, you're up. Okay, so uh, project managers will still struggle to come up with a good measure of agile team productivity for their executives, and, and consultants will continue telling those project managers that they shouldn't be measuring productivity. Well, then what do the project managers do? Help me, John. Is, is that true, Jason? Uh, do the consultants tell the project managers that they should not be managing? Measuring productivity? Is that what the consultants are doing out there? Uh, that's what some consultants do. But if you're asking the question personally, I do not do that. That's like, the, that's like saying that the scrum master's job is to make sure that everyone else is doing their jobs, which it's not. It seems like it's one of these dirty little secrets, maybe, that people often try to hide, shy away from, if not hide from, shy away from the the bright spotlight of measuring productivity. I think the problem is defining what productivity you're measuring. It's because there's a lot of easy things that have kind of been lumped into the, uh, uh, the term measuring productivity, like lines of code and, right. and uh, test coverage and uh, that sort of thing that we all know just doesn't work and isn't really useful except under the right circumstances and used by the right people um uh who know what the context is it's not you it shouldn't be used by managers and above 
Um, and so when you talk about measuring productivity, it's like, okay, well, what product, how are you, what productivity are you measuring there? What, how do you, how do you decide what is a productive team or not? Well, I think this number five is just a train wreck the way it's stated right there. So let's fix it. Okay. I'm going to fix it. So first and foremost, obviously we got a problem. The project managers are talking to the executives. So if I'm the consultant in there, I'm going to work with the project managers to say, Hey, let, let's either go talk to the executives together or, you know, let me talk to the executives or let me help coach you on how to talk to the executives on what you should be telling them because you're practicing agile. Then we're going to go and see those executives and we're going to take this thing called the feature list. Okay. We're going to show it to the executives and we're going to say, executives, we want to get some input from you on what the estimated in your own opinion, what is the business value of these features, you know, item for item. This information will be, will be very useful if you, if you haven't started a project yet. You can actually use this to help facilitate planning. You could do your weight as short as job first prioritization if you want to do that. But most importantly, to measure productivity, let's then measure the cycle time or the flow by which those features are made available for release. And then over time, if you have business value associated with those features, you can go to the, the executive and say, look, in the last month, we released these features to production. In a perfect world, you'd have revenue targets on these, if you're, especially if you're in a software as a service model. So if you release a new, a new feature to production, you can charge for it. You're going to sell additional subscriptions. You, know, you can make a strong case that you can coach executives with if you can associate business value with features and show that to them. And what's the number one way that we demonstrate product, progress and by association productivity on an Agile project? By releasing working software. Yes. And by delivering working software. And, and further, by demoing that software to our stakeholders. So there has to be some way, I think, in there that you can correlate the progress of working software to productivity. How often are they getting working software? To your point, Jason, what is the, the worth or the business value of what is being delivered? And yeah. is the team focused on delivering the most important uh, functionality for the business at each and every opportunity throughout throughout the release plan? Yeah, I'm trying to make some like simple takeaways from this whole rundown. I mean, number one, obviously, was by you know put the big resources, the no resources sign up, you know, for that. But this one, I mean, if there's a simple thing, if if any team or project that is looking for an experiment for the new year. Try to get some business value estimates in some type of a quantitative measure, be it, I don't know, revenue or whatever. Maybe even use points of some kind. Put those on stories. Measure that throughout the course of your project. See if it, see if it helps you out when you have to work with stakeholders. My hypothesis is it will, but I'd love feedback on if you try it and it blows up in your face. I think it would be an interesting experiment. If you are equating productivity to exactly what you're talking about, Jason, um, which is business value, it would be interesting to see what the business people, the exercise they go through to actually uh, put business value onto these things. Um, I, I've seen it happen a couple of times, and it always feels like they, they go in it, into it earnestly uh, for about the first half, and then they get really tired of it. And just kind of start throwing numbers onto things. Yeah. I think part of the problem is that still we're thinking of man, old management, management 1.0 versus 
versus knowledge worker productivity, which they talk a lot about in uh, the book Management 2.0. Who was that book from? Management 3.0, John. You're you're, you're a version off. Everything's at 3.0 now. I'm still working on Wife 2.0, so. Oh, geez. Uh, no, but the, I think there's the radical management by um, oh shoot, I can't remember his name. Hey, you're a, you're going to Pella. What? You're going to Pella if you're talking magic 3.0. No, I'm talking about a radical radical management. Radical management. Wow, we're all having a break. We're all have we all had too much eggnog tonight. Was tonight the night of the Essential Life holiday party? No, we yeah we need to have one of those. Um, anyway, back to the topic. So. <laughs> There's there's the idea of the old way you measure productivity just for workers, right? The number of reports that somebody produces or the number of tires that roll off of the tire assembly line. Yeah. With knowledge workers, you can't do that because a lot, a lot of what they're doing is all inside their brain and is not easily manifest in a way that can be demonstrated as productivity. So we've got to come up with new and different ways to deal with this. And I think that's the challenge. So simple takeaway is put some business value on your stories for next year. And I think if you, if you're a team and a, or a coach of a team and you go to your product owner, your business stakeholders, and you have that discussion, as you mentioned, John, I think that will hopefully help get people interested more in what you're doing. Very good point. And you mentioned discussion, Jason, and I'd like to point out at this point that it's often difficult for us to carry this discussion on with you outside of, of the strict confines of the podcast, obviously there's just a lot of one-way communication going on here. So we'd like to invite you to continue this discussion with us on our private Google Plus community. You'll be able to interact with the host of the show, help us decide on future topics for the show, and engage in all of our lighthearted tomfoolery, mostly focused at Jason Tice. Really? That's so nice. Is that a personal (laughs) invitation, John, or is that an invitation to the community at large? That is a invitation to the community at large so you can you can join our community from our website by clicking the join the community banner out there so check it out guys okay let's go on to number six sorry and bad I think, meetings it's <laughs> i think lee's up yeah bad meetings and complaining about the number of meetings in agile will remain the norm man i hate bad meetings and i don't i don't i don't have them i hope i don't have them i always have agendas short Half hour, you know, at the most, if possible, um, no more than 45 minutes. I hate hour-long meetings. I hate complaining about meetings, and I just think meetings are the dregs of our, our daily life and industry. So for the purpose of discussion, can we clarify on what a meeting is? I mean, obviously, if it's, if it's a sit-down meeting in a room, that's a meeting. But what about a stand-up? What about a turnaround? I mean, are these things all what we're going to call meetings too? Yeah, I think it's got to be some sort of scheduled out in advance thing. And they're mostly ways for managers to look like they're actually doing work, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, boy, John is ripping on the managers today. So this this to me goes up with number one. Ask yourself, if you're a project manager or even a coach, you feel you need to have a meeting, if, people, if you've already done number five, which is all this business value stuff, and you've got your stakeholders, you know, they're, they're, they're frothing. They want you to finish more stories and more features to get more business value out there. 
you need to do your part to try to reduce the number of meetings. You need to have meetings. So if you're the scrum master, or you're a coach, or you're you know someone who's responsible, kind of like John said, you need to do your homework. You know, if you're a facilitator for a retro, do you have a plan for that retro so you're going to come in and it's going to be successful? Or if you're just going to come in and wing it, will that be effective and will that be well received? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And I know Amos isn't here, but a little bit of planning can go a long way. So I'm not saying go off and have a, you know, a huge plan, but ensure that you have enough information that the discussion is successful. I think the problem is, is that a lot of people um, who, a lot of people will, will use meetings as a crutch um, because they... For what? A example. A example would be, you just said, you were just uh, so well, just a little bit of planning. Well, okay. Well, we didn't have enough planning. You know, in a retrospective, this comes out. We didn't. We didn't really understand the the stories well enough, um, and it took us longer to get into them. We had to pull some back. Blah, whatever. Um, but and then and then the the tech lead or the PM or whoever will say, oh well, maybe we should just have these uh, these short little planning meetings every week. Um, to, to talk about that. And maybe that really is necessary. The problem though is rather than trying to think about is this necessary, is this the most effective way to get this communication to happen, um, people will simply jump to let's have a meeting. That's what I mean by it being a crutch. That's like having a meeting to have a meeting. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> That's the worst of all meetings is too. Yeah. I think they do a lot of those in big government. We're going to meet to get ready for the meeting with the big Mr. So-and-so. Oh, yeah. They just have to have a dry run. I think there's two, par- two parts of a problem, so maybe I'll get lost like Jason did before. But the first part of the problem is somebody who schedules a meeting doesn't bother to take a few minutes to think about what it is they want to accomplish in the meeting. And then they're going to take the time of, you know, I don't know, five, six, ten people for an hour and burn burn a bunch of their resources burn a bunch of their time <laughs> resource not the people the time their time resource yeah i thought and, we were going back to the uh the salem witch trials here you were burning people burn, yeah i'm trying not to burn any people not too often anyway and then all because that person scheduling and arranging the meeting couldn't take a few more minutes to thoughtfully consider what are we going to discuss and what are going to be our outcomes? And then our second piece, and the whole time Tice has been trying to distract me from actually remembering the second piece of that, is, and I forgot it. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Happy, no. So Happy holidays. I remembered my other one, by the way, no, if you want to go back to it. No, no, I, I, I have it. And so the second half of it is that when somebody does thoughtfully put together an agenda or send out items ahead of time, then the other people attending the meeting are not ready and prepared. And therefore, you spend the first half of the meeting re-reviewing all of this information with everyone. And it takes a half an hour just to do that, and then a half an hour to make the decision on the thing you wanted the decision made on. So That's funny. My wife is a teacher, and she has the same complaints about her students never doing their homework and being ready to actually learn in class. Exactly the same thing. Yep. Doesn't get any better once you're out of college. Why should it? They've, they've learned the lesson well in school. Yep. So I got a few things to say. So first and foremost, 
since we're all about trying to, you know, who gets the last word here? Back on number three, which was the infamous discussion where I lost my thought, I did want to mention something about investment themes. Maybe we'll go back to that um, and how they could be used to help manage expectations and make things easier over time. There's no going back, and nobody remembers what number three is by now. Number three was about the managers and the stakeholders wanting things as fast as possible. So anyways, because um, one thing we didn't talk about was how you ensure you don't have tech debt, which slows you down over time. But John doesn't want to talk about that. So let's talk about bad meetings. So John, you brought up, uh, you know, sometimes in the public sector, there's a desire to have a lot of meetings because there might be people that's all, they're, they're paid meeting coordinators. Yeah. Having worked in the public sector, in particular in the in the, uh, in the defense space, one thing that I liked, um, and I, this speaks to what you were talking about, is that some meetings based upon protocol and who you're meeting with have a role that's called the action officer, the AO. Oh, no. Well, no, this is the person that's responsible for ensuring the meeting's successful. And they have to, you know, do an agenda, which doesn't mean they talk the whole time. It means they're responsible for having the right people in the room for the topic that's going to be discussed. And they help facilitate the meeting. They might keep time. They might be responsible for, you know, taking notes for people who can't make it. Or so there's there's a value captured um, or they might delegate that to someone else who's there. But nonetheless, they are really responsible for the effectiveness of that meeting. I think it worked great um, as a way to ensure that when you bring people together, you make an investment of that time, which costs money because time is a resource. People are not. It ensures that there's someone who ultimately is accountable for ensuring effectiveness. When done right, I think that action officer approach can work very well. It just has to be crisply executed and there has to be clear expectations. Yeah. For the what problem is going I see to in Agile is that we say we, we, we drink a little too much of that Agile Kool-Aid sometimes and we say, oh, we're self-managing. We don't need to have anyone in charge. We don't need to have anyone accountable. And the problem is if you don't have anyone accountable or you think the whole team is accountable, well, on some teams, that works, but on other teams, it doesn't. And then you have no one being accountable, and we get number six, which is too many bad meetings. Very good. So if you're out there, don't be afraid to be accountable. It's okay. But also, just because you're accountable, it doesn't mean you're in charge, because you can delegate things. Okay, let's do number seven, now that the Agile Factor has given us talking points for bad meetings. I like that. That was good, too. And he still wants to go back and talk about investment themes. Woo! Number seven is cubicles. And, and Jason, lay off, lay off the eggnog, would you? No, it's the Kanban teeny man. It's the best drink ever. <laughs> okay. Number seven, cubicles and other sensory deprivation cells will still dot offices, but there will be fewer of them. So that's progress. I think he's saying there's going to be some progress, but we will still have the cubicles and the other sensory deprivation cells like offices and private rooms. Well, so Lee and I are in an organization that is pretty open. So um, it's hard for us to, so John, you're in the environment that isn't very open. So, or is it? It's actually more open than you might think. We do have a much more open floor plan. We do not have cubicles, managers, you have offices, mainly because they have to have those human resource conversations that we've so famously talked about here. We just need to stop having those. Yeah, but we have big, big uh, agile pod areas. Some people call them pits. Some people call them bullpens. And uh, they're wide open. So I think that's funny. This has gone mainstream. Um, the thing you can thank, I think, that's helping with number seven 
is I mean the developers that's out there, but you know sometimes there is there is the stereotype of the programmer that wants to sit in sit in a cubicle for you know fifteen hours a day and write code all by himself. Don't talk to him. Give him Mountain Dew and pizza or Jimmy Johnson. He'll be fine. Right. Just let him be. Uh, but you know it's funny is from the user experience community. Some of the again the designers are out there. One thing that all the design agencies do is they're very good at credentializing and showing off their brick and mortar offices because that helps them sell. And so people see these design centers that are like all open and they're glass. And what's funny is people realize that works effectively for design because design is highly collaborative. Well, guess what? The same is true for software development. So if you do that for your design group or you have a design company that does that, why not engage with a software company that employs the same practices for collaboration? Well said. I think those are good points. Okay, let's move on to number eight, Jason. Number eight, female programmers and architects. Ah, good. We're inclusive here. Will still be unheard of in many organizations. Can we answer this at all without sounding sexist? Um, probably not. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, as long as we know, then go ahead. All right. I'm writing it down here. We are going to have in 2014 predictions for this Agile Life. We need to have an all-female episode with no none of us involved. No Y chromosomes. Have we ever had? We have we ever had a female guest, John? No, but I have a couple on on tap. At least, okay, at least good. two, if good. not three. Good. Uh, I actually think that I have. I have. Yeah. So there's a lot less females in. In engineer in this sort of an engineering discipline, software development and uh, architecture going along with that. But in my history, I have had a number of women work with and for me and around me uh, far more than I think is what would be considered the industry average. Almost every team that I've been on has had at least one female, if not more. Well, the other thing that I like about what Gil's calling attention to is, is he is not being afraid to call it like it is. And that is that sometimes, and, you know, we started talking about human resources, you know, there's a perception out there that, you know, sometimes you, you might have a, a female member of a team who's not, who isn't, there's a perception that can they, can they do the work to be a technical member of the team? Or are they better to be more of, you know, kind of a, think of it as a, pro, a project manager, a scrum master, not a hardcore tech role. I like what Gil's calling attention to here to say that, you know what, again, it's about, it's, it's working with the tech. Anyone could do it. There are any barriers. So everyone should play together. Um, yeah, I, I think this, this goes, you know, straight to, to uh, old style prejudice here. I mean, the, you just have to have to assume that. Uh, anybody coming on the team, no matter what their background is, can do the job that you're expecting them to do. And in in my experience, as long as you start with that expectation, pretty much everybody that I know, uh, regardless of what their background is, will meet those expectations. Yeah. Yeah, the other one that I could share, and again, I feel this, you guys remember the infamous episode we did talk about yoga. So I, as a hobby, I teach yoga. That is not a, let's put it silly, that's not a male-dominated field by the any part. Um, it's tough. You know, you, you're, you're at a workshop or you're in an environment. You're like, oh, I'm the only guy in the room. Okay. Hmm, interesting. So, but for everyone else out there, know that you have allies. I think all three of us on this podcast, actually probably anyone who's involved with this podcast is an ally. And at the same time, you know, the, the equalizer is the technical practices. And at that juncture, once you get involved, um, 
you know, the sky's the limit. I think maybe what Gil is pointing at and prodding at here is the fact that there are just less overall women in uh, as a ratio in the industry. And the three of us as, as fathers with daughters should uh, maybe try and improve that by encouraging our, our young daughters to do things like robotics that I know Lee is into and, and other engineering things. What are you talking about, man? My kids are... My kids think that Dean Leffingwell looks like Santa Claus, so because they saw a picture of him. So they even they've learned skilled agile. Now we just got to get them to do some technical work. Buy, buy your girls Legos. I have lots of those. You want to see my go. my Lego house? Excellent suggestion, Lee. Uh, Lee, why don't you go and read number nine? Oh goodness gracious! Here it comes. Consultants will continue arguing over the merits of various methodologies and frameworks, while practitioners, getting more and more confused, will just do whatever their organizations will tolerate. No, we won't. Yes, we will. No, no. I no, mean, we won't. <laughs> so this is that New Deal thing again. This is this is where I think you know people have you know, and it's funny because. Pick, pick something that's not controversial in the methodology space. I mean, Scrum has its issues. I mean, Scaled Agile has its issues. People are all over that these days. Um, and at the end of the day, people need to get work done. So uh, I see what I see the merit to this statement, but given the hype and, and the potential revenue that can be earned by selling methodologies, and the, I don't see the market is going to stop buying methodologies. I don't really know what the way ahead here is. There's definitely an impedance mismatch because the consultants and the companies they work for earn money through coming up with new and innovative practices to sell to companies, while practitioners get paid for executing on their project and getting things done. And those things, those two things are potentially in direct conflict with each other. Well, but see, John, I think there's a compromise there. I think there's an opportunity to say, hey, I'm a consultant, you know, I'm a coach, whatever. But part of my success criteria is helping your practitioners deliver. And if, if, that's, my, if that's part of my success criteria, you know, yes, I am going to help coach them on what they need to do from a methodology perspective, but I'm not going to, you know, cause them harm, which will impact their ability to deliver and be successful because that's then chained to the way I'm being evaluated. That's the way I think. I know others that don't think that way. So I know there are some consultants that are a little bit more focused on their methods out there, but I'd encourage them to change. I think, I think this goes back to number five, actually, in being able to measure productivity. I think that uh, as a, as a, science, a scientist kind of a guy, uh, I can't really call myself a scientist, but, uh, but I would like to. Um, and, and so I still kind of, Harken back to the fact that if you can find some way to quantify um, what it is to be for a team to be productive and to to accomplish the goals that are set in front of them in some quantifiable way, then we don't have to argue about the merits of various methodologies. We simply have to measure them. I think what we that's a good point, Lee. I didn't want to gloss over it, but I think that one of the things that we lose focus on maybe as consultants from you know coming into a company um newly coming into a company we forget about the fact that some of the things that we're doing 
and suggesting affect actual people. And maybe we should spend a little more time understanding the goals and aspirations of those people before we start blanketly providing suggestions and white papers and the like to these organizations. I think ultimately it may come back down to, uh, to revisiting the, the manifesto or uh, reminding ourselves about what that really means from an agile perspective, because uh, the manifesto was never meant to be a particular methodology. It was meant to say, here are some good ideas, um, some things to, that you should focus on um, above others, and not how to get there or, or a particular framework or even particular practices. It was just, here are the things that you should value. Yeah, but the mark, but Lee, the market's gotten so bloated. I mean, like or before earlier this evening, John and I were talking, and like just earlier today, you know, I got, I got a, I got, I got a push, you know, like a, a white paper download from a really big company in the agile space, and it opens up saying agile practices, blah blah blah. You know, completely lost the whole idea of principles and values. So, I mean, the market has become really, really, really polluted these days. Again, I'll put it as a pick at the end of the show. This New Deal thing that's out there, it's kind of a, a pushback against that. So, um, and I don't know what it is. We'll figure it out over time. Okay, so there is a number 10, but it's kind of a throwaway. And number 10 says, and people like Gil will remain hopeful and driven to change all of this. Well, I think by that, John, it means people like Gil and at least the three of us, since we kind of ripped the last nine to shreds with a whole bunch of hopefully usable, actionable advice that, you know, even if you only pick one of them, you know, um, if you try that, if everyone does, if everyone does something little overall, it will help the big picture get better. Stay vigilant. Try and find ways to make small incremental improvements in your organization when the opportunities present themselves. Yeah. Okay. So having gone through that, does anyone have takeaways? So like a, like a one or, you know, a few things that you think are capstone to like the whole list. I have a feeling the agile factor has oh, a whole list. Of course list. the agile factor. He took notes. So let's um, hear. So, uh, so I have two, I have two, I have okay. two. And you know what, for fun, I'm going to do a rehash of my one thing that I didn't talk about on, on number, number five, because it's something we need to talk about. So, the rehash on number five as I throw a pen at the computer. The rehash on number five is says, really, when we talk about we shouldn't be measuring, um, no, that was the uh, number, number three. Number three. Thank you. That was so long ago, Lee. Boy, I'm not thinking tonight. So, and no, number three says that technology managers and stakeholders will still assume that their teams ought to develop quality products faster than is realistically possible. So the problem with this is so many stakeholders, they don't understand that the complexity of knowledge work and the complexity of the engineering disciplines. If you're investing in your monitoring investments, you should be investing some in new features, but you're there throughout a, a project, there will be the need to invest in, you know, call it technical work, infrastructure improvements, architecture, so you can avoid technical debt. Assume it's going to happen. And really, if you're a team, work to make that case so that over time it doesn't become your, your software doesn't come doesn't become to the point where it's too complicated and costly to maintain over time it should be easier to develop if you maintain your technical practices you guys agree or not agree I, 
I, yeah, I agree. Um, I think that the uh, we should do an entire show on on tech debt. I think. Okay. Okay. I'm just saying that, and knowing that from from a couple, of, I mean, scale agile and other frameworks, they call that an investment theme, where you're, I'm sorry, capacity allocation. You're allocating capacity for different things. So my two takeaways. Uh, number one, the, uh, for number one, the simple thing that I think everyone should go do: put the big sign up that says no resources. Or if you don't want to put a sign up that says no resources, put a sign up that says people work here. So again, people work here. People are what makes self-managing teams unique. And all too often, we think that we can overcome people issues with technology. Sorry, you can't. You got to work through the people issues, and you got to acknowledge that you're working with other human beings. So. Um, Number two, real simple, measure everything. Real simple here. So, you know, I talked a lot about business value and measuring stuff there, but anything you're doing, and what we even said at the end about doing experiments, if you don't know how to measure, that's a great thing to learn for the next year. So I would challenge you to say you could measure anything out there. And as John would say, I guess I, you should go to our community, you know, our little private Google Plus community, and you could ask us questions and we'll see if we can. You know, maybe if you got questions about how to measure something, we might have an idea that might be relevant for what you're trying to do. So check us out online. Try to measure everything going forward into the new year. I don't know that I can back up measure everything because there, there's just so much there. And I, I think that you should collect measurement metric information whenever, you, whenever it's convenient and really make some tough decisions about exactly what behaviors you want to motivate and drive through measurement. Measure everything that's relevant. Okay. All right. Any last words on the human side of Agile? Well, just that the human side of Agile is a great book. If you haven't read it, um, it's a great book. It talks at depth about a lot of the things we've got in here to tonight. Um, and again, it does acknowledge that if you're doing agile, you're doing knowledge work in an environment that can be volatile because it's all based upon human interaction. So check the book out if you haven't. It's a great thing. Um, also, Gil's got a great blog. He's also got a great um, email, um, email newsletter he puts out about every six weeks. Uh, actually, in this, this uh, list we went down, came out in one of his new letter, newsletters that he, um, he pushed out just recently. So some great things to check out. I guess I'll have to put that as my pick so we can feature that in the show notes. All right. Well, you're already into your picks, Jason. So why don't we go officially into the picks and let you do your few other ones? All right. So I've already kind of bled all over my picks. So um, obviously, Human Side of Agile, it is a book by Gil. Um, he also has the corresponding website, humansideofagile.com. Check it out. Um, this thing about, you know, kind of talking about you know, evil consultants call them um, really focused on methodology. Uh, the New Deal uh, with dashes. So the dash new dash deal.org. Um, check that out. Might be something you're interested in. And um, last but not least, kind of overscoring the whole theme tonight about people. Um, this new book coming out is called Joy Inc. It's the story of Menlo Innovations, um, put together by Richard Sheridan, and um, talks a lot about human factors um, and really a way to create a joy, a joyous experience um, in the workplace uh, from a cultural background. So a cultural, corporate culture. So um, by the time this podcast is posted, the book will be out. So uh, check it out, and um, it's a good read. We'll probably talk about an upcoming episode since I like it a lot. Hey, Jason, you know what? I don't like that they've co-opted the, uh, who was it, uh, Eisenhower in the New Deal? Or not, uh, not Eisenhower, who was it, um, Truman? 
one of the presidents. This is not a history podcast. It doesn't matter. Okay. The only history here that matters is agile history. Well, I just don't like that it's they've co-opted that term, New um, Deal. I don't even know what that thing is. So I, I, something we'll, I'm sure we'll learn more about it in the coming year. I hope somebody will tell me on Twitter. All right, Lee, what's your picks tonight? Well, I have one that uh, is really a movie called Pentagon Wars. And in particular, there's about a 10 or 11 minute uh, piece of it that talks about the story behind the Bradley fighting vehicle. And uh, it's really a lesson on scope creep. So they start with this, this uh, uh, troop carrier, and it's got a gun on top, and it's well, well made for what it's supposed to do. And then the generals get a hold of it and start changing the scope all over the place, and it takes another 10 or 15 years to get the thing out. And in, it ends up being a, a troop carrier that doesn't actually uh, transport that many troops. And a scout that is too big to be stealthy, and a um, and a semi tank that doesn't have enough armor to protect itself. So uh, the the whole story of that is is kind of a really interesting uh, perspective from an agile software perspective because we we see that all the time too. So you can you can find it on uh, you can find that particular YouTube uh, clip. Uh, if you just look at Pentagon Wars and then uh, Bradley Fighting Vehicle, you'll find it. Or you can rent the rent or buy the whole movie, Pentagon Wars. Somebody said to me on on Twitter recently, Lee, that and it it uh, it's apropos of of your description of the Bradley Fighting Vehicle. They said that a camel is a horse that was designed by a committee. <laughs> Interesting. And I, to which I replied back, "Hey, I think a camel's got some good attributes to it." <laughs> of course, it does. Okay, it has emergent architecture and intentional architecture. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my pick tonight is a simple one. It's something called Magic Prefs for all of you Mac owners and Mac users out there. It's a really cool little utility that helps you customize just about every aspect of your mouse. If you have an Apple Mighty Mouse, if you have a trackpad, uh, this Magic Prefs gives you an amazing array of settings that you can modify and change and things that you can do to improve your mousing. I noticed and had a problem that when I was using Safari with my magic mouse that i would somehow inexplicably inexplicably zoom in to like a crazy percentage like i was a blind person and i was like what the heck is this doing you know and i couldn't figure out how so it was part of the journey how i found magic prefs and started using it and that's my pick jason only one you're so good Hey, I got one bonus here. I got a bonus. I'm going to try a bonus to, pick. Okay. No, I'm going to kick it to Lee. Lee, can you tell the joke? <laughs> um, so I'm for those to, that don't know, we were supposed to do this episode like a week ago and schedule got all messed up and Lee and I somehow hooked up through John's Skype account. And we just talked for a while. We should have recorded it, but we didn't. But Lee told me a joke that I thought was pretty good. Let's let Lee close it out tonight. He could tell us this joke. 
you, you put me on the spot, Jason, and I was reading it off of somebody's webpage at the time. So uh, I, I can't bring back the joke, man. Okay, well, guess what? Go in your browser history and find it. And in a future episode of This Agile <laughs> Life, Lee's going to tell us a really fun joke. And maybe Lee's gimmick should be a joke every episode. If you like that idea, let us know about it. Here, here's the super deep tease is that you only get to find out what the joke is if you join the private Google Plus community. <laughs> oh, Lee great. Told, you guys are putting real pressure on me here. Yeah, real pressure. Lee told the joke really good, you know, in, in an audible format. So we need to put the joke on in a future episode. We'll go find it, Lee, and we'll come back. So okay, everyone come back next year. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, Mr. Joke Maker Jokerson. All right, guys, that's all we have time for tonight. Good, so I can go shopping at the last responsible moment at 2 in the morning. Well, tomorrow at, at 2 in the morning is the last responsible moment. Yes, I think responsible, responsible is way past, Jason. Oh, oh really? Well, this will, be a, this will be an infamous holiday season is all I can say. Well, we better end it so Tice can go finish up all his shopping for his, his, his significant other, his better half. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for joining me. Jason, where can folks find out more about you out on the uh, internet? People could find me at The Agile Factor. That's www.theagilefactor.com. Also on Twitter at The Agile Factor. And w- of which you will have all kinds of talky points and finger waving and face palming and everything else. Yes, I will. Um, after I get through the holidays. And as Amos would say, my backlog is so long of things to put on my blog. Oh my goodness, I got to get there. I should I should have spent more time working on my backlog as opposed to making my backlog. That'll be a whole nother show too. I think I need to hire uh, this guy named John Sexter to be my agile coach. All right, good idea. Lee, what, what, uh, where can people find you out on the internet? I'm at, at Agile Atheist on Twitter and agileatheist.blogspot.com for my blog. Very good. And I'm John Sextro. You guys can find me at johnsextro.com. Hopefully my redirect is working again. Sorry about that. You can also follow me on Twitter at JC Sextro. And you can find this information, including our Twitter handles and our blog sites and everything on our slightly revamped website at thisagilelife.com. We've got a bunch of information out there about how to join the show. And someday Lee and Jason are going to get pictures of themselves out there as well after i harass them a bunch you can find the show notes to the podcast and the links to the private community and everybody thanks for listening and keep living this agile life 